My job is very easy tonight because we have a very fluent and distinguished individual who knows everything that's worth knowing about the royal family. And he knows I'm an ardent monarchist, and I think you are still, aren't you? I will explain. Okay, I hope so. Keep listening, Harry. <laughs> so, so my job tonight is relatively simple. Uh, those people in the audience who want to ask questions, uh, which I'm sure you will do after Patrick has spoken, uh, just raise your hand and I'll call on you. Patrick's in my wife's book, uh, The Diana Chronicles, and when I said I was coming tonight, she's at Newsweek, she said, he's such a marvellous individual, which I'm pleased to pass on to you, and I think you will find it so. What is, he did a superb job for Princess Diana and Prince Charles. A superb job, because the press are a bloody nuisance. I mean, I, 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 I was at the palace for, when the Queen called the editors in and asked all of us if we'd show some restraint and not photograph Princess Diana, the famous chewing gum, when she went into the village in jeans. And one of my fellow editors said to Her Majesty, why didn't she just send a footman? And you know, the Queen said to him, what a pompous fellow you are. <laughs> <laughs> which was perfect. So the next day when I wrote an editorial in the Times, I said, some people might suggest Princess Anna should have sent a footman. What a pompous thing that would have been. <laughs> and I got a nice note. Anyway, no more from me. Patrick Jefferson. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. And, and thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, you've said all the thank yous I was going to say, but I'm <laughs> going to add one to you because I think Bonhams have found a real gem in you because uh, you, you understand what it takes to interest people in what goes on here and to bring in the most varied and, and educated and distinguished um, uh, set of new clients and new friends and our audience tonight. And Mary Jo, my wife, and I are both very grateful to all of you for coming. Um, we, we will take any excuse to visit New York from our home in Texas and um, this, this, I think, is the, the best excuse we've ever had. So thank you. The British monarchy. What next? But since we're in New York, it just seemed to me it might be a more logical and certainly a more polite question to ask the British monarchy, who cares? <laughs> After all, in 1776, it took uh, General Sir William Howe and 22,000 soldiers to persuade... The, uh, the good folk of Manhattan, that the British monarchy really was for them. And look how that turned out. <laughs> Since then, of course, Americans in general, and New Yorkers in particular, have taken a rather friendlier interest in British royalty. And the friendliness is fully reciprocated. Her Majesty the Queen first visited New York in 1957 and has been twice since, most recently in 2010 when she paid her respects at Grand Zero. A poll taken after last year's royal wedding suggested that more than 50% of Americans are in favor of Britain having a monarchy, uh, presumably an opinion based on the, on the condition that a royal army doesn't come rampaging south from Canada. Incidentally, that, that royal wedding last year was watched by an estimated 2 billion TV viewers around the world, which suggests that the, the whole question of what happens next to the House of Windsor must be of pretty widespread interest. 
You may have seen Time magazine's cover story about the, uh, the 100 most influential people of 2012. And there on the list this year, Kate Middleton and her sister Pippa. Last year, Kate Middleton and Prince William. <laughs> I think we know at least one person who's going to be on next year. The Windsors certainly seem to be here to stay. My mother used to tell me a story, which I suppose was, was pretty current in the 1950s. Jonathan will, I'm sure, confirm this for me. When um, King Farouk of Egypt was deposed, he is said to have remarked that soon there will only be five kings left. The king of hearts, the king of clubs, <laughs> the king of spades, the king of diamonds, and the king of England. Mind you, speaking as a middle-aged Brit, albeit one with an Irish passport, proud to have an Irish passport, wondering about the future of the monarchy feels a bit strange. It's almost disloyal. Because when we think of the monarchy, we think of Elizabeth the person. Little gray-haired granny, 86, nine days ago. And many of us in my generation grew up thinking of the queen as a kind of distant but very real alternative mother figure. My own mother was about the same age and actually resembled the Queen quite a lot, especially if you looked at their hairdos. <laughs> <laughs> and wondering what's going to happen to the monarchy next means wondering about what it's going to be like when that lady dies. And that's not very nice. Anybody here met Her Majesty? Yes. Jonathan, I know you have a weekly audience, but... <laughs> Sir, care to share an, uh, an impression? Well, let's put Sorry, the question again, Patrick. Put yeah. the question again. Yeah. Anybody met Her Majesty? I'm sorry, ma'am, yes. One person? Very small, yes. But she kind of makes up for it. <laughs> Perhaps with... Um, the, what about the rest of the royal family? How many people have met Prince Charles? Yes. Hands up those who have had a one-on-one -on -one royal experience. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, and counting. When I first became aware of the Queen, I suppose, I was still at school. And um, this was in Scotland. It was the middle of winter. It was a grey, rainy morning. And um, the really exciting thing was we got the morning off school to go and stand in the rain for hours <laughs> to have a, a, a half-second glimpse of a lady who looked like my mum in the back of a car. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still very thrilling. And not just because I got off um, double mathematics lesson that morning. Even at that age, it seemed to me that here was something that, that uh, was pretty magical. And years later, when I was already the Princess of Wales, Princess Diana's private secretary, I was sat in a room with the princess, the prince, and all their assembled staffs at the six-monthly torture, which was trying to put their diaries together. And this was a torture that got more tortuous as their marriage became more difficult, as you can imagine. And um, this day was one that was dreaded among all others, above all <laughs> others, because the tension and the, the, the minutiae, the difficulties trying to, to coordinate these two very busy people's program gave endless opportunities for disagreement and, uh, and misunderstandings. And at the, um, 
perhaps one of the most tense moments of one of these tense meetings. The prince was asked to agree to attend a particular state ceremony. I can't even remember what it was. But, but something pretty innocuous, but in royal terms, very much run-of-the-mill, what they're expected to do. He, of course, already had plans for something else that day. <laughs> and there was a long pause while everybody tried to think of ways in which he could be persuaded to undertake the state ceremony. Uh, and uh, he complained, wasn't it the Queen's turn? And it was explained the Queen did it last year, so it was his turn this year. Um, um, but really... Couldn't somebody else do it? No, it would be taken very amiss if it weren't somebody of that rank. And Princess Diana leaned across the table and said, there's a phone over there. Pick up the phone, talk to your mother, and ask her if she'll do it for you. <laughs> Some of you may be familiar with the Bateman cartoons. <laughs> the man who drops the terrible social break. The whole, the whole room held its breath. But um, such was the Princess of Wales's power of command that the prince stood up like a man in a daze, crossed to the telephone. In a minute, he was speaking to the queen, and in two minutes, she had happily agreed to cover the engagement for him. Tells you a bit about Princess Diana, tells you a lot about the queen. And this was always my experience of her. I mean, I was a, a, a bureaucrat courtier who liked to see things done properly. Um, and here was, here was my boss cutting right through all the red tape, Right. to achieve a happy result. It makes you think what else she could have achieved, given the chance. But whichever way you look at it, it's horrible to think of the Queen no longer being with us. But as Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin famously said in the 1930s during the abdication crisis, he reminded Edward VIII when, he, when the King was determined to marry Mrs. Wallace Simpson. The Prime Minister reminded the King the throne is bigger than the man. And Edward VIII and his controversial paramour, controversial American paramour, sailed into exile. But the monarchy sailed serenely on. And this bit of history should remind us that for all that the media increasingly seems to see the royal family as an extension of the celebrity industry, the monarch retains an important constitutional role as a focus of national unity above the here-today-gone-tomorrow politicians, but also as an enduring check on executive power. Mm -hmm. The current constitutional arrangement has been described as a crowned republic. And Winston Churchill put it like this. I won't do the voice. In our island, by trial and error, and by perseverance across the centuries, we have found a very good plan. Here it is. The queen can do no wrong, but advisers can be changed as often as the people like to use their right for that purpose. Nobody should underestimate modern royalty and their advisers' ability to influence events, for better or worse. It works both ways. If you ally that with modern news management techniques, I believe it's an aspect of monarchy's future role that's going to require careful watching. Controversy is best left to elected politicians. Now, the British monarchy is a thousand-year-old dynasty. 
And if you're in the dynasty business, priority number one is to survive. Priority number two is to keep the family business in business and in the family. And it's worth emphasizing that royal people tend to take a much longer-term view than the rest of us. After all, they're royal for life. They're not running for election. They're not running for a bus, either. The queen has been <laughs> served by 12 prime ministers. Wow. That's just so far. Yeah. Churchill to Cameron and counting. And she's dealt personally with 12 U.S. presidents. Wow. Yeah. Right back to Truman. She measures time by decades, by generations, not by electoral cycles. And it seems to me in a U.S. presidential year, presidential election year, when America seems to jump into a complete new dimension of the space-time continuum, that contrast is particularly obvious. Now, as you probably know, this June in the United Kingdom and in her realms and territories around the world, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee is going to be celebrated. 60 years of duty. And that certainly deserves recognition. It will be, in the opinion of one of Harry's rivals, the London Daily Telegraph, an outpouring of warmth and gentle patriotism. And then there's the Olympics. So don't try and drive around London this summer. It's going to be a busy time and a great summer and a great party. So you should, you should go visit if you can. If you do go, or even if you just catch some of it on TV, you might find yourself asking, how can they possibly follow this? And any way you look at it, Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, defender of the faith, is going to be a tough act to follow. But followed it will be. His Majesty, King Charles III, or possibly George VII, as he's rumored to want to call himself, by the grace of God, king, defender of the faith. faith. Oh, defender of faith. Faith, ah. Because, not the, Harry, not the faith. No, no, defender of faith, because he is said <coughs> to want to reflect his kingdom's new religious diversity by dropping the the. And he's been standing in line to be king for a very long time, longer, in fact, than any of his predecessors maybe in 10, maybe in 15 years from now, or maybe this very night. No, stop it. He could be king. The next face on the postage stamps, the head on the change jangling in pockets from Calgary, Canada to Christchurch, New Zealand. So I think that answers the question, Harry. Um, well, are we happy? Uh, <laughs> Job no. done? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think not. I might... Um, I might stop there. That is the future of the British monarchy. But of course, it does raise a number of other interesting issues. Because it's fair to say, I think, that the prospect of King Charles is not universally popular, at least at the moment. That may change. As we've seen, royalty has an important constitutional role. But that role is visibly expressed through symbolism and ceremony and theater. So the images it offers are crucial to the health of the brand. The image of an elderly man and his rather more elderly wife tottering up the aisle 
to be crowned in Westminster Abbey at some uncertain but distant date is not guaranteed to set hearts, especially young and impressionable hearts, ablaze with loyal enthusiasm. (laughs) Opinion polls in some of the 16 countries which have the monarch as head of state, such as Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and 13 others, suggest the whole question of their relationship with the crown will come under real scrutiny when Charles becomes king. And the title, Head of the Commonwealth, you know, that wonderful benign organization which one-third of the world's population belongs to. The title, Head of the Commonwealth, was a personal honor to Elizabeth II and does not automatically pass to her successor. At home, of course, the memory of Charles's first wife, Princess Diana, is still very precious to a great many people. And some of them won't find it easy to transfer that affection to the man who, you can bet on this, plans to make the former Mrs. Parker Bowles the next queen. And the United Kingdom itself is looking rather less united these days. Scotland is preparing for a referendum on independence. And though it's significant that the Independence Party has gone out of its way to say that they intend to keep the Queen as head of state, I still wouldn't bet my last bottle of scotch on that honor being transferred to her son. Now, I made this point to my good friend, the eminent historian and uh, distinguished royal biographer, Hugo Vickers. Some of you, I hope, have read some of his books. Now, Hugo knows more royal history than I ever will, and he's probably a bit more objective about the whole subject than I am, but he sees no grounds for pessimism. He sees a wise and thoughtful King Charles enjoying a brief but successful reign, supported by Queen Camilla, as a prelude to the triumphant arrival of King William V and Queen Catherine. He's quite enthusiastic about it. He told me, if you feed all the requirements into a computer, that's the answer you'd get. (laughs) I hope he's right. But I suspect his very scholarly analysis, and anybody who's seen Hugo try to switch on a computer knows (laughs) how scholarly it is, I suspect his analysis won't satisfy everybody. Around the time of the royal wedding last year, I was talking to a group of teenagers, and I asked them what it all meant to them. And, of course, they loved the royal wedding. Interestingly, the wedding bit even more than the royal bit. And who didn't? And they were very enthusiastic about the new superstar royal couple. But when I gently pointed out to them that if Prince Charles lives only to be the age his father is today, then the newlyweds from last year might very well be grandparents before they ascend the throne. And the teenagers, two of them, my daughters, their faces fell. They said, but we want a king and queen for us. And it's not hard to see their point. Even seasoned royal journalists talk rather glibly about William and Kate as if they were next up for the top job. They're not, and probably won't be, till most of us in this room are pushing up the daisies. Now, again, I mustn't be too pessimistic about this. 
one thing the Windsors have shown is their ability to adapt, to update their constitutional role, and indeed the whole theatre of royalty to adjust to changing public expectations. The rising generation of royal performers, the members of that generation, William, Harry, and others, Kate, are proving themselves to be very, very good at not just keeping the show going, but actually revitalizing it and giving the audience plenty to cheer about. The latest poll from Reuters shows that Kate's reputation and her status have rocketed since the marriage to the point where three in five Brits believe she has become a role model for British women, and just over half think she is now a British icon worldwide. And I think they're probably right. Mm -hmm. The William and Kate effect, especially the Kate effect, are bringing a whole new luster to the long-running royal drama. And every member of the royal cast, that's cast without the E, is feeling the benefit. But with apologies to Hugo, I must just point out a couple of areas of concern. First, as I've mentioned, the monarchy may have to wait another generation before it gets the injection of magic that undoubtedly William and Catherine will bring, even as the world's most glamorous grandparents. That's a long time for today's young adults, a powerful constituency, to wait. The Queen was already a mother twice over when she inherited the throne at the age of 25. That's five years younger than William is now. The generation that grew up with the Queen, my mother's generation, happily supplied the bedrock of royal support ever since. Second, my generation got its own injection of royal magic when another loved-up young couple were presented as the new and exciting face of the monarchy's future. If you'd asked me back in 1981, what next for the British monarchy? I'd have sat you down with a, a Betamax tape and a, a ton of delirious <coughs> newspapers and magazines so you could relive the fascinating and exciting day when Charles and Diana were married in St. Paul's. Now, there isn't time to list all the ways in which William and Kate are not Charles and Diana. Comparisons between Catherine and Diana are particularly misleading, not least because Diana was wife of the heir, not, as Kate is, wife of the heir but one. Plus, of course, Diana was 10 years younger than Kate when she was led wide-eyed onto the royal stage at the age of 19. And nor am I saying that history is going to repeat itself. Certainly, let's all pray that it doesn't. But if Hugo Vickers and his fellow optimists are to be proved right, the lessons left by William's parents must be learned. In this age of 24-hour news and professional image management, the first lesson is obvious. Popularity is fickle. A great servant, but a poisonous master. The pursuit of popularity is doubly dangerous when your exalted place in the world is the result of inheritance rather than personal merit. And when popularity deserts you, as it's bound to, perhaps temporarily, the unwelcome headlines 
can be doubly disconcerting. And bad headlines tend to lead to more bad headlines. It's a downward spiral of deceit. You've probably seen some of these supermarket tabloids, which are quite often, and in some detail, writing stories about problems in Charles and Camilla's marriage. All rubbish, obviously. But as it's currently conceived, the whole future royal narrative depends on Camilla being happy to carry on playing the part of linchpin to the whole project. And those of us who remember the dark days of the 1990s media war between Charles and Diana, we should have learned that slick PR can only do so much. In my time, Princess Diana never employed an image consultant and never had even one full-time press secretary. By contrast, Prince Charles's news management machine was and is the best that money can buy. Now, of course, a professional press office is surely justified in today's insatiable media world. But it can all too easily become a convenient means of suppressing unwelcome stories and spinning your own version of the truth. We love Kate and William because we believe the images of them that their media advisors allow us to see. The rest of their lives, quite properly, is private and off-limits. But if the day should ever come when those images are seen to be a whitewash of the truth, as happened with William's parents, that will be a dark day for the future of the monarchy. I hope it's a day that never dawns. And of course, meanwhile, there's a digital monster out there. It's called Twitter and Facebook (laughs) and Pinterest. And it's in millions and millions of smartphones. Each smartphone, incidentally, also being a portable news-gathering device. For the royal wedding, the palace press experts fed the monster very carefully selected tidbits. And the results, I think we've all seen, have been triumphant. But my experience is that that monster, that beast, if you'll excuse me, Harry. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, please. It has an appetite far beyond the palace's ability to control. Right. And it will quite happily sink its teeth into the hand that feeds it. If royalty, if royal reality ever loses out to the easy appeal of royal spin, the loser in the long run will be the whole institution of monarchy itself, which depends on the people being willing to give it the benefit of any doubt. That trust is perhaps the greatest legacy of Queen Elizabeth's lifetime of service, but it can be destroyed in a matter of moments. Remember Warren Buffett. A good reputation takes 20 years to to build and 10 minutes to ruin. That's what I hope the palace's highly paid PR technicians remember when they come to work every morning. Now, these sort of concerns might have amused the American founding fathers, who were not famous for being too concerned about royal reputations. Listen to Thomas Jefferson. There is not a single crowned head in Europe whose talents or merit would entitle him to be elected a vestryman by the people of any parish in America. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I now live in America. Well, Texas. And <laughs> not just because of the superior quality of the vestrymen. I like it here. I like the fact that sovereignty, more or less, really does lie with the people. I love that patriotism is expressed through a flag rather than through a particular family. And second, only to my wonderful American wife, I like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Even so, I think part of my heart is always going to remain monarchist. For one thing, I'm a romantic, and for another, my family, off and on, not always perfectly, have been serving kings and queens since the 13th century. My ancestors were um, getting into trouble, I'm sure, in the courts of Henry III, Henry VIII, <laughs> Elizabeth I, William III, and now Elizabeth II. I had the honor to serve for 15 years in the Royal Navy, and believe me, we took the royal part of that label very seriously. And my personal belief is that by doing what she has to heal wounds in my native Ireland, the Queen has created an unsurpassed, uplifting historical milestone. And of course, I mustn't forget that for eight thrilling and occasionally terrifying years, I worked for the woman who was going to be the next Queen. I hope you'll forgive this, this slight stroll down memory lane. This portrait was the last ever painted of the Princess of Wales, and I have to say it was her favorite. It's the work of the distinguished American portrait artist Nelson Shanks, uh, for whom and whose work I have the highest admiration. But coming to New York always reminds me of visits I made here with Princess Diana. The very first one in 1989, um, when at the age of 28, she made her first major solo overseas tour. And she came to New York. And among many other things, she went to the Harlem Hospital Center and picked up a little African-American baby who was dying of AIDS. Mm. Now, in 1989, nobody spoke about AIDS. Certainly nobody in polite society, nobody in public life spoke about AIDS. Yet here it was, the unseen scourge. And by that simple act of picking up this helpless baby, Princess Diana transformed public perception of that illness and transformed treatment and attitudes towards those who suffer from You might emphasize that was her own volition, right? Absolutely. Not, yeah. not, not stage managed by you. No. Uh, the great thing about Princess Diana was you didn't have to stage manage her. You could create the stage. That was our job. She did all the rest. She did the magic. And she didn't need a script, and she didn't need prompts. And she didn't even need much applause. She just did it. And a couple of years ago, I went back to the Harlem Hospital Center and interviewed the doctor in charge. And he, he repeated. He said, Princess Diana brought AIDS to the world's attention before an American president had even acknowledged that it existed. Mm. Maybe. I think it might have been the next morning. I was helping myself to a big breakfast in the Plaza Athenae where we were staying, and the telephone rang. And like an idiot, I picked it up. <laughs> and the voice said, can I speak to Princess Di? And I said, no, I'm sorry, that's not possible. And the voice said, well, who am I speaking to? 
And I said, well, my name's Patrick Jeffson. I'm Her Royal Highness's equerry. <laughs> I thought, that's a strange question. And the voice said, well, Patrick, how does it feel to be talking live on New York's biggest breakfast radio show? <laughs> Not good, I tell you. <laughs> By the grace of God, at that moment, um, one of my colleagues came in, and he's a, he was a former radio journalist. And I said, call for you. <laughs> and half an hour later, they were still talking. <laughs> Mind you, I was luckier than Edward VIII's equerry, who, when he was visiting New York, um, they were due to get a train from, from Grand Central somewhere. And when the train was due to go, the equerry was missing. And this was because he had left his trousers and his wallet in the bedroom of a lady for whose company he had paid substantially the night before, <laughs> Fruity Metcalf. And Fruity Metcalf's experience has stood as, a, as a, a warning to all royal aides ever since. I think it's a warning that American Secret Service could probably take a leave out. Okay? <laughs> Talking of the American Secret Service, of course, when she was here, Diana had a Secret Service detail assigned to her. She had a wonderful call sign, Empire One. Oh, I, I like it. That. I yeah, that. We tried that in London. It didn't work. But Empire One had a very professional, dedicated, and I have to say, I mean, terrific Secret Service detail. And I got to be very good friends with them. And the senior agent was called Doug. And Doug never said a word, except into his sleeve. <laughs> um, and he never listened to anything I told him because he was too busy listening to this. And one night... The princess was due to go to the Brooklyn Academy of Music, to the opera, Welsh National Opera, Faust. And Doug and I were standing outside her door at the Plaza Athenae, and she was very, very punctual. Great courtesy, she thought. And sure enough, at the appointed moment, the door flew open, and there stood the princess, dressed for the opera. Five foot ten, plus heels, plus hair, in a striking, low-cut black gown, and an awful lot of tanned royal skin, lightly tanned. <laughs> and Doug stopped listening and stopped thinking about the voices in his ear and just goggled. <laughs> and there was a pause. And the princess leaned across to tap Doug in the chest. She scratched his shirt front. And I could see, I hadn't noticed this, there was a shape underneath his shirt. She said, what's this, Doug? He said, uh, bulletproof vest, Your Highness. <laughs> and she gestured to all this tanned royal skin and said, shouldn't I be wearing that? <laughs> <laughs> My last memory of the princess in New York is perhaps the most poignant. It was the last overseas tour I did with her. It was at the end of 1995, and she was here to be honored as the Humanitarian of the Year at the Hilton Ballroom. The award, I think, was presented by Henry Kissinger before a cast of of many distinguished visitors, including your good friend Rupert Murdoch. And uh, after the, the presentation, we went back to the Carlisle this time. And as sometimes happened, I saw her to her door, and she invited me in for a glass of champagne and to do a sort of a, a review of the day's events and some rather funny impersonations, which I won't try and mimic tonight. And after a couple of glasses of champagne, I said to her, you know, ma'am, I think you were right to accept this award. I normally go around the world telling people, 
You don't accept awards, you give awards. <laughs> but you made an exception this time. You accepted it, and I think, I think you deserve it. And she cut me right down to size. She said, Patrick, I don't deserve it, but I'm working on it. Mm. She saw her royal duties as work. She was brilliant at that work because she worked hard at it. And she saw her life as being, well, a series of further work objectives to achieve. She felt that she was here to try and do what she could for those at the bottom of the heap. Now, you'll notice, if you look closely, that Nelson has depicted the princess in front of a partly open door. And this is, in his whimsical way, a teasing reference to the princess's unknown future. At the time this was painted in the, um, in the studios at Tite Street, there was daily controversy about what her future was going to be. And, of course, little did Nelson know, and little did the rest of us know, that within two years she would have passed through that door and beyond our sight. I believe that the British monarchy would have been immeasurably richer if the late Princess of Wales had lived long enough and happily enough to be the next queen. Her memory and her spirit live on in her children, and I think we can all be sure that she would be very, very proud of them. It's their loss, and I think the world's loss, that she was destined never to wear the crown, that she is part of the monarchy's past, not part of its future. Now Elizabeth II stands by that part-open door. The future of the monarchy, I think, is now more than ever in the hands of her and in the hands of the women of the Windsor dynasty. In the past, it's very often been the royal women who have saved the royal family's bacon. And I think monarchists should hope that they are again equal to the task. Now, because the British monarchy is a very human institution, it's always going to have flaws. But the flaws will always be forgiven if the virtues of modesty, integrity, and duty are always associated with it in the public mind. This Jubilee summer, those of us who are subjects as well as citizens can thank God that our sovereign has served us so well for the last 60 years and has been such a shining example of all three of these core royal virtues. A few minutes ago, I posed the question, how are they going to follow that? Well, I just hope that we have to wait a long, long time to find out. Mm. God bless the Queen, and God bless the United States of America. Thank you. Thank you.